Man. Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Why don't y'all stand with me as we prepare to read from God's Word? So glad to have y'all on Labor Day weekend. You could have been on the lake or somewhere else, but we're glad that you're here, right? We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, as Pastor Richard talked about. I'm starting in our series, The DNA of Our Church. And we will start at verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 10. So read with me. It says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them, in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. Not from work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared for us ahead of time for us to do. Let's pray. Father, this is a text that's filled with bad news, not just bad news, but the worst news. We were dead. Ah, but this is a text that's filled not just with good news, but the best news. You've made us alive. Would you remind us of that turnaround, that comeback? Would you remind us that that's what you're here to do, Father, to bring dead men and women to life? We thank you for that, Father. Uh, We pray that your word cause our hearts to leap for joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seat? You know, DNA tests in our day and age have become very... Popular as people go to Ancestry.com or things like that, their aim is, um, I want to recover a bit of who I am by trying to go back and find out where I came from, what family am I a part of, where should my sense of dignity and worth come from. So that, in a nutshell, is what we're trying to do here in these next three weeks as we reflect on why we're here as a church. We want to ensure that all of us that are in this room have a sense of our DNA. And like Richard said, the three weeks uh, will be us. We'll get a chance to talk about the gospel. What is it? Why is it important? How the gospel makes us family and how that same gospel puts us on mission. And what we want you to get here in these three weeks is this is an all or nothing. You cannot have one of the things up here without the other two. 
The gospel is not just a private commitment in between you and God. It's meant to go public. The gospel is not just about your private relationship with God. It's meant to put you in a relationship with a father who has adopted a whole bunch of kids that don't look like you. And so as we talk about why it is that we started this church, I just want to take you all back to a few years ago. Seven years ago, a group of folks moved here to the southwest side of town in the West End. And the reason why they moved here was because they saw uh, these overwhelming and apparent problems in this community. And they found these overwhelming and apparent problems, but the solutions that were presented were underwhelming. So you talk about the problems of the broken family. You talk about how unfair policing and things like that. You talk about the effects of slavery and racism in the U.S. and how that has affected the family, particularly the black family, particularly families that find themselves in contexts like this. And you start to see that there is this plague or a pandemic of fatherlessness that is unique in contexts like this that as well as I know has been unparalleled in the history of the world. And broken families lead to a bunch of problems. So did you know that in the sex trade, more than 60% of women that find themselves selling their body for sex have aged out of the foster care system? Broken families. We saw that in an abundance on this side. Overwhelming problems and the solutions were so underwhelming. Trying to teach people how to turn over a new leaf. Just trying to teach people how to get jobs so they can provide for their families, which which is important. But it was underwhelming for us. Marginalization, poverty, lack. Overwhelming. But the solutions that were provided were very underwhelming. Let's just give them what they lack. Let's give them what they need. Let's start soup kitchens. All of that is good. Those are very, very good things, but that does not cure the problem of a lack of dignity inside of a person. Tragedies. There's stories here in this room of folks that have lived here on the southwest side and have seen and have heard of the worst things that take place. And you can do all that you want to to try to make a place safe. But what you quickly find out is that tragedy has never crushed a community. Hopelessness in the midst of tragedy crushes communities. So you see this place with broken families and marginalization and lack of hope. And all the solutions that were presented were just, let's do things to help them turn over these new leaves. As it related to marginalization here. What you find is that folks from the outside say, hey, 
we're all about community transformation. And what you quickly find out is that they don't mean we want to change the people that are here. What they mean is we want to exchange the people that are here. And we thought getting the poor out is not a solution. We found out that the problems or the solutions didn't work because I think at the core we misunderstood the problems. The problems of communities of folks, uh, what you have to get is that communities are made up of people. And all people share the same spiritual DNA, which means that they all have the same problems. Everybody thinks, or we can tend to think, that the way that we fix things is I've just got to leave my problem behind and turn over a new leaf. Have y'all heard that phrase? Right, I just need to turn a new leaf. That came in the 16th century when books started to be printed and the pages of books they called leaves. So you could turn over a new leaf to a blank page and start over. And we tend to think, I just need a fresh start. College, there's uh, lots of y'all here that are in school. You may be a college freshman and you think the problems that I had at home, all I need is a fresh start. And what you're quickly going to find out is that your problems have legs and they follow you. Turning over a new leaf, it doesn't work. A new school year is not going to fix things. A new job is not going to fix things. A resolution made on the first of the year is not ultimately going to fix things. And when we think our main problem is just something that we need to fix inside of us, here's what that does to us. It takes us on this spiral. Because what you quickly find out is that bad habits are hard to break. And so you'll try. And you'll find out that there's just some things that you can't break by the strength of your own willpower. You know it. You've tried hard. You've worked against it. And the, the more trying that you do, leads to more times that you fail, and the more times that you fail leads to disappointment. And the more times that you continue to, dis to disappoint yourself, not being able to change like you hoped that you would, it leads you to this depression, especially spiritually when it comes to how you relate to God. If you think that I just need to do better, and if I do better, God will love me and take care of the things that are wrong in my life. You're quickly going to find out that if you are honest with yourself, you're going to have to come to grips with the fact that eventually you've disqualified yourself from God's grace. You may feel that right now, like I've done too much wrong for somebody to love me. I've done too much wrong for God to love me. So while turning over a new leaf, while wanting a fresh start, while it may seem good, it only leads us to a difficult time trying to break bad habits that we cannot, disappointment that comes from failing to change ourselves, 
and depression when we finally see who it is that we are. And so here's what I want you to see. Here's what we're going to spend time in our text on today. I want you to see that the desire to turn over a new leaf is not a bad one. It's just a shallow one. That what the Bible does is it gives us such a better hope for change, and that comes in Ephesians 2. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And what this is, this is just the Apostle Paul, a man that prior to being introduced to Christ, had done a bunch of stuff that should have disqualified him from God's love and God's grace, but instead God changed him and used him to help spark and spread this Christian movement. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to recount the Christian story. And so I've got a few points. The very first one is this. Um, You are both helpless and hopeless. I know it sounds like bad news. And let me tell you, it's actually worse than you think. As you get older, uh, what you find out is that um, you don't have to do anything to hurt yourself. You wake up and yourself just hurts. Right. So, you know, sometimes small pains, right, are just minor inconveniences. Your back hurts. You can't play ball like you used to. Take some Advil and you'll be fine. But sometimes these minor inconveniences are actually signs of this major illness. So brain cancer can masquerade as a nagging headache that won't go away. What you need is a diagnosis, and this is what Paul gives us. This is how he starts off. So if you felt like, I've tried to change, I've really tried to do better, and I just can't, I don't know why, here's what Paul says, here's why, because you're helpless and you're hopeless. Verse 1 through 3, it says this, and you were dead. It's been said that, Metaphors don't stand on all four legs, and what that means is that, you, you know, at some point, uh, metaphor, like, breaks down, right? So if you look at somebody and you say, man, their legs are tree trunks, what you're saying is, well, their legs are big. What you're not saying is their legs have limbs and bark and soil and roots. There's only so far that you can carry out a metaphor. This is not one of them. When Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, from a spiritual standpoint, what he wants us to see is that apart from Christ, as you and I come into this world, we aren't just spiritually bad, we're spiritually dead. And what, but what can a dead person do? Nothing. No movement, no drawing near towards something that he loves, no drawing near towards something that's beautiful. And so Paul starts off and he says, hey, for all of y'all that were frustrated with how bad you were, I really want you to know you weren't just bad, you were dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
But he doesn't just stop there. It's not just that we're dead, that we can't move towards God. We were dead, but we were also enslaved. Look here at the three things that he brings up. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, right here, verse 2, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, that's one, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in disobedient, that's two, and three, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclination of our flesh and thoughts, that's three. We were dead, but we are enslaved, as God's word says, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Here's how that plays out. He says, you were enslaved by the ways of this world. That if we think of the ways of this world as a lazy river, there is a strength, there is a current that guides our world. The best that I've heard it explained is this. The ways of the world are this. Anywhere where sin seems normal and righteousness seems odd, that's the ways of this world. So anywhere that it seems normal to take vengeance on somebody that's done you wrong, it's the ways of this world. Anywhere that it seems normal to give somebody a piece of your mind when they frustrate you, that's the ways of this world. And what Paul says is, You were guided down this lazy river, enslaved by the ways of the world. But the testimony of Scripture is not just that our world just goes some way on its own, but that there's somebody behind this blowing the current of our world. So that's where it says, yo, according to the ruler of the power of the air, right? Satan himself, the devil. There is somebody behind this thing that moves things along. And so here's what I want you to see. It's not just that people in our world are messed up, but even the systems in our world are as corrupt as the person that's blowing it in one direction. So the criminal justice system, which we talk about all the time, it is corrupt being part of this world. So we're enslaved, not just that the world takes us along, not just that Satan is behind the scenes trying to blow these things. But then in verse three, he says this, look, we too all previously lived among them. And here's his words, carrying out the inclination of our flesh and our thoughts. So what he's trying to bring out here is though the world had you on this boat moving in one direction. Satan is behind the scenes making sure that the world moves this way. And you were in that boat paddling right along. So the point that he's trying to make is this. Nobody has put a gun to your head and forced you to sin in a lot of the ways that we have. And why I use that word enslaved is that All three of these things work in tandem. And here's why I say you're not just helpless, but you're hopeless. Look there at the end of verse 3. And we were by nature 
children under wrath as the others were also. Whose wrath? God's wrath. So the Bible tells a story of a God who made this world to reflect them, a God that is perfect, holy, and loving. And do you know what the tangible expression of love is to somebody that threatens the thing that you love? Wrath. So this phrase that we hear about, well, we're all God's children. Um, the only problem with that is the Bible. As the Bible starts out, and when it says right here, look, we are children under wrath. It's saying that by nature, we come into this world inclined to move not towards God, but away from God. And I want you to hear this. That you and I can't move towards God. We move away from him. Helpless. But we're hopeless in that there's nothing good that we have done that would incline God to move towards us. So we're in trouble and there's nobody to help us. The only person that can help us is one who we have offended and we earn his wrath. So the picture that's painted is you being somebody that does not know how to swim, locked and chained in a coffin, sending, being sent towards the edge of a waterfall, and you're dead. So even if you could get out of the chains, it didn't matter because you're still dead. Even if you could get out of the chains and you had life, it doesn't matter because you can't swim. The Bible does not just say that in this world there are good and bad people. The testimony is that all of us are dead, helpless to change what's wrong with us, and hopeless because there's nobody to save us. If you really get this, do you know what it does for you? It helps you not to expect too much of people. It helps you to be reminded that maybe the reason I'm so frustrated with my family or with those outside is that I'm expecting them to somehow do something other than be dead in their trespasses and sins. It helps you and it reminds you Maybe I'm depressed and I'm in despair because I've expected too much of myself. Because apart from Christ, I thought I had the ability to change myself, to turn over this new leaf. Do you know what it does when you really grasp what the problem is with everybody in the world? It moves you 
from being angry at people that have done you wrong to being empathetic. To say maybe at the end of the day, maybe what they don't need is just for me to scold them and to change them. Maybe what they need is for me to say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This proper expectation is meant to move us from pounding people to praying for them. Our family, our friends, our loved ones, ourselves, people that have our anger rarely have our sympathy. Do you know what else this does? A diagnosis like this can be strangely comforting. Um, you know, three and a half years ago when the church started, uh, six weeks before our church started, my brother died, and the rest of that year I just felt different. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was tired all the time. I changed from being an optimist into a pessimist. I like to sit in the room with the lights off. I just didn't have any energy. And so I go to a counselor, and so as I start to tell him what's wrong with me, uh, he's like, oh, John, you don't just need more rest. You don't just need this. Um, you're actually what we call depressed. It wasn't a good diagnosis, but it was a helpful one, right? Because if you understand the nature of a problem, then you know what the solution is. If you misdiagnose a problem, you're only going to go with the wrong solution. Think of being in, in your house. And, and, and a small fire breaks out in, in, uh, in your house. Piece of paper flames out. What's the first thing that you're going to do? You're going to blow on it, right? You're going to uh, run it under a stream of water because a small fire is something that you can take care of. What happens if there's not a fire in your house, but your house is on fire? Are you still going to blow on it? Are you still going to try to stamp it out with your blankets? Are you going to take your hose from the backyard and try to spray it? No. Do you know what you're going to do? The problem is too big for you. So you're going to call the fire department. And when you get on the phone with them, you, you say, hey, my house is on fire. Um, I know y'all are going to come. When you get here, what should I do? What part should I play? And do you know what they're, they're going to tell you? Uh, when we get there... I'm going to need you to get out of the way. There's nothing that you can do. You need us to help. And that's where this text leads us to. Listen, you start off, you're helpless and you're hopeless. But the good news here is that you are still helpless, but now you're hopeful. Look here at verse 4, right? Verse 1 through 3, that's all about your works. That's all about our life. That's all about what we've done. And our actions don't pick back up until verse 10. Verse 4 through 9 are all about God. Verse 4 says this, but God, not you, not your grandma, not somebody that gave you good advice, but God. And look, it starts off with who he is before it talks about what he does. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had, for us, right, made us alive with Christ. You are saved by grace. 
He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Here's what he does. We're going to look at this and we're going to go through, through, through it real quick. Here's the main point. Look, God doesn't just want to help you turn over a new leaf. God is determined to hand you a new life. God does not just make bad people good. God makes dead people alive. God's rich in mercy, and here's what he does. Before it talks about what he does, look, it talks about the motivation. Because of his great love that he had for us. This is not, right, this is not like Beauty and the Beast, right, where you have Belle, and there's this big, like, beast that has these, like, ram horns and antelope legs and a lion man. And he's just, right, ugly. I know you're not supposed to call folks ugly, but this brother is not traditionally attractive. <laughs> Belle, Belle looks at him. Belle looks at him. And what she says is, I know the whole world thinks you're ugly, but I see your heart. I see the way you treat these little dancing candles. And I, and I love you because of what you have in the inside. That's not what takes place here. God looks at the hearts. And do you know what it said about us in verse 1 through 3? On the inside, we're actually worse than we thought. So this is not God seeing something that he loves in us. This is God because of his great love that he had for us. It says more about God than it does about us. And what he doesn't do is help you turn over a new leaf and fix your bad habits. What he does is he takes people that are dead and he makes them alive. Life. That's why it's so, right? That's why this is such a miracle. Because you don't just need somebody, like, people can and at times change their bad habits. People smoke, and then they say, I, uh, I had a family member that died of lung cancer, so I want to give it up. What we don't just need is somebody to help us change bad things about us. We need somebody to give us life, and this is what God does in Christ Jesus. He makes us alive. And here's what makes that so huge is um, you may have had friends or family members that have had stories of, man, I knew this one guy and he stopped breathing and his heart stopped for five minutes. But then they brought him back to life. It's one thing to resuscitate somebody after a few seconds or a minute or two. But the scripture that we read. In John chapter 11, Jesus lets Lazarus die, and then he comes back, and what they say is, hey, Jesus, don't bother. He's already been in the grave for four days. And what he does is he goes in and he brings a man that's been dead for four days back to life. Spiritually, we come into this world dead, and 
There's some of us that have met Jesus when we were kids. There's some of us that met him when we were teens. There's some of this church that met him at 40 years old. Jesus takes somebody that's been dead for 40 years and brings them to life. What a God. What a God. But he doesn't just stop there. Look here at verse 6. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So what he does is he doesn't just take folks that are dead and then bring them back to life. But it says that in the same way that Christ is exalted and has this glory that one day God will do the same thing with us and he's going to raise us up in the same way Jesus was accepted and doesn't have to perform for God. You and I have been raised up with him and not just raised up with him, but look, seated with him. Hebrews chapter one talks about that after Jesus did his work and made a purification for sin, do you know what he did? God raised him up and he sat down. He said, I'm done working. I'm chilling. I'm resting. God has raised us up, not so that we have to work for his love, but that you and I can rest with him in Christ Jesus. So that, look, in the coming ages, right, that is from now until eternity, God wants to display the immeasurable riches, right? So those words right there, think of space, right? Do you remember being in a ki- uh, kid and you would take that field trip and you would go to the IMAX and they'd show you this big thing of space and you would get a glimpse of what space was and then your mind was blown because you heard uh, space doesn't just stop with what you can see. It goes on and on and on and on and on. This is what Christ throughout the rest of time What Jesus wants to do is to take you and I who were dead and use us to show or display the immeasurable riches of his grace through the way that he was kind to us. Listen, the world that we live in looks at Christians and the ways that they sin as an excuse or a reason for why they should abandon Christianity. In eternity... Jesus is going to take our sin, and that's going to help show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness in the fact that he was kind to people who he had no obligation to serve. The reason why the Bible, when it says that we're God's children, Ephesians 1.5 says this, we have been adopted into God's family. Because when you adopt a child, what you are doing is saying there is somebody out there who I have no obligation to care for. But I'm going to bring them into my family and I am going to care for those who I have no obligation to save. Did you know God had no obligation to save us? Had he not made us alive, he still would have been God and good and just. But he chose to. What I love about this, and I really just want to drive this point home, y'all, this is God's work and not ours. So what you'll see time and again here is this phrase, 
in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It's best to think of it as this divine geography. Excuse me. A location in Christ Jesus. God wants to display his kindness in Christ Jesus. It's like this. Being in Jesus is like being inside of a house in the desert with solar panels. Here's what solar panels do. They take the wrath and the heat of the sun. They absorb it and they transfer it into power. So you could be in the middle of the desert, and so long as you're in this house, you're cool. Not because of any work that you've done, but because these solar panels had absorbed this wrath and transferred it into power for the AC. That's what Christ does. That God had all of this wrath for us based on how it is that we live. And it's there. But Jesus himself absorbed that wrath. So that all we get is kindness. If you think that I'm making too much of it, go back into your Bibles, read Exodus. And what you'll find out is that the children of Israel were faithless to God. As a result, God said, you're going to have to wander in the wilderness under this blazing sun for 40 years. But do you know what God did in his kindness? He gave them this pillar of cloud to give them shade. Do you know what that cloud did? On the back side of the cloud, it absorbed the wrath of the sun so that God's people could stand in the shade. God's disobedience, complaining people weren't punished for 40 years. They were reminded of God's faithfulness for 40 years. So you and I are saved not by what we do, but we're saved by our union with Christ. Here's what that is, and I'm going to continue to drive this point home. Here's what I want you to see. It is not just about turning this new leaf. Because what you quickly find out is you can turn a leaf and start fresh, but if you're still imperfect, you're going to mess up these pages the same way that you did the last one. But our union with Christ is this. The message of the gospel is that Jesus' work replaces our own. It's like this. Throughout these past 11 years that I've been a pastor, I've been routinely asked to write letters of recommendation for people. So what I've done, and I'm going to let you in to this. I'm going to have to change it up after after this is done. Um, Ten years ago, I really didn't know what to write, so I Googled how to write a letter of recommendation. And so it gives you all these, like, things to, to say, right? There are... Some of y'all in this room that have gotten jobs based on these that I've yeah, written. So what I did was I had a template that I wrote 10 years ago. And when anybody asks me to write a letter of recommendation, I go into the Word document, and there's this great tool called Find and Replace. So you find one person's name. You insert a new name, and you click on this replace all, and magically, a letter of recommendation for Shane turns into a letter of recommendation for Daniel. Listen, 
when it says that we have been made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ, so that God can show his kindness in Christ. God doesn't just give you the ability to turn over a new leaf. He takes the stories that were written about Christ, and what he does is he puts your name there, and he clicks find and replace all. So now when God reads this story, everything that Jesus did that earned God's faithfulness, your name is in there. It's a new life, a completely new life. It is a completely new story. Do you know what that does? Do you know what it does for you if you really grasp this? You experience freedom because you find there is nothing that you can do to make yourself more lovable to God. He's done it all. But it also helps you see, for those of us that are in Christ, for those of us that have put our faith in him, there's nothing that you can do to make yourself less lovable. It doesn't mean that God is not grieved by sin. He is grieved by sin. But what it does mean is that your story, the totality of it, is already written. And he's used the find and replace all on your name and on Christ's name. God's love came before your performance, which means that God's love is not based on your performance at all. The verdict is in. For those of us that have put our faith in Christ, the gospel is the great exchange. This is what it means that you're saved by grace. You're freed from the wrath of God to enjoy the blessing and faithfulness of God because of God. You're still helpless, but now you're hopeful. And what we find is that God is not just a God of resurrection. He is a God of recreation. So we started off as helpless and hopeless. And because God gives us a new life, not just new leaves, we're still helpless, but we're hopeful. And do you know how this text ends? That you and I are hopeful, and now we're helpful. Look, look here at verse 8. But you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. It's not from works so that no one can boast. Look, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Yeah, did you see that? It says we are his workmanship. God made us. For good works. So we aren't saved by our good works, but we are saved for them. Here's the first thing that we do. Verse 5 says we're saved by grace, and then it talks about what God has done. Right here it says this, for you are saved by grace through faith. And so I want you to hear this. You cannot make yourself more or less 
lovable to God. You can receive his love or reject his love. Here's what it looks like to receive his love. To receive this love by faith is you and I accepting what God says about us. It's confessing our sin to God and to one another and saying, I believe that all of this is true. I believe that the worst of the news is true. I believe that I can't do anything to save myself. But I believe that the best of it is true. That God has done all of what needs to be done in order to save me. And so as we come to him, we don't have to come to him with promises of what we're going to do from here on out to hope that he loves us. We come to him saying, I know what you said that you've done. God, and I pray that you would help me to accept and to receive your love as shown in your son by faith. Here's what it looks like to reject this. And I want you to listen really closely. To accept this gift is this active going against the grain and saying, God, I believe what you tell me, even though the rest of the world says it's not true. I believe what Christ has done. Lord, help me to stay close to you, to reject God's love. It's not an active thing. Do you know what you have to do to reject God's love? Absolutely nothing. Just continue to live the way that you have. And you'll be carried along by the ways of this world, by the ruler of the power of the air, by your own flesh and thoughts. The world has a current and it'll drag you. Satan is blowing in its sails. It'll care for you. Your flesh itself will move far away from God. Even now, I'm not sure where we all stand in here but I know this is a big enough room to assume that everybody in here has put their faith in the Lord. Even now, the enemy may be whispering to you in your ear. Just postpone. Hold off just for a bit. You really haven't tried as hard as you can. Just got to try harder. No, no, this time you're really going to do it. You're really going to put that lock on your phone. No, 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 this time you're really going to do it. All right, you're not going to get mad at your spouse anymore. No, this time you're really going to do it. You're really going to combat greed with generosity. No, 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 no. All you need to do is to turn over a new leaf. And I want you to know that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's like trying to blow on a house fire. Just step back. Accept the truth as it's laid out in here. And experience the hope that comes from a God who is ready to absorb God's wrath for you and give you nothing but kindness. And then once we accept that, once we're so filled with that hope, it actually makes us helpful. Once we experience this life, you and I are able, like Mike put it this past week, to do alive things. One of the things that I miss most about my brother um, is the way that he just dreamt. He was a dreamer. And for those of y'all that knew Sam, you knew that, that Sam would 
always have like some scheme about, nah, no, no, look, look, look. Yo, if you buy this, flip it, put it on eBay and sell it, I'm telling you, you can make a bunch, right? Sam had these schemes and he'd constantly daydream about ways that he could advance uh, things in this world, his own wealth to be able to do good. And so what this text does is it says that God has saved us and he's created us for good works that he's already prepared in advance. So as you and I are alive, one of the first things that we can do is daydream about ways that we can be useful. We can spend our time and sit back and reflect and just daydream, just get lost in all of the good things that that God has done. When people die, that's when you stop dreaming. If you've been saved by God's grace, dream, live, think, brainstorm. At your lowest moments, when you feel so far from God, think about what Christ has done. At your highest moments, when you're tempted to look down at somebody else, be reminded of how you got raised up to where you were. Always daydream about God. Two, discover. Right? The text here at the end says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, look, for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Other translation says, no, God prepared these works so that you and I would walk in them. What it's saying is that God has already laid out the ways that you and I can be useful for his glory. We just have to walk in the footsteps that he's already laid out. Three questions that you can ask yourself to help you discover ways that you might be useful to God. One, how has God made you? What likes, dislikes, what gifts, what skills, what burdens and passions has he provided? How has God made you? Two, how did God save you? What did God use in your life to make the gospel come alive? Was it preaching? Was it teaching? Was it relational connection? And three, where has God placed you? Who has he placed you around? Who has he provided you a platform with? How he's made you, how he saved you, and where he placed you can help you discover how God might use you. That word workmanship is meant to give us this sense of this poem, this masterpiece. And masterpieces aren't made to sit in the garage. Masterpieces are made to be displayed so that people can see the beauty, not just of the piece itself, but of the artist that created that. This is what God has done with all of us. He's taken dead men and he's made us masterpieces and he wants you to be useful. Discover ways that you might best serve God. And then lastly, be deployed together. Richard's going to talk about this uh, more next week, but it's this. You're helpless of no help when it comes to your own salvation story. God does all of the work. But you can be helpful when it comes to somebody else's salvation story. God wants to use you as the means through which they see him. And I think 
if you and I embrace the fact that the problem is worse than we've thought, it's not just that we're bad, but we're dead. And we embrace the, the solution here. It's not just that God helps us to turn a new leaf. God gives us a new life. Then it puts you and I on a path wherever God has placed us to provide overwhelming solutions to the most apparent problems. That you and I are reminded that when we come into contact with people that are the products of broken families who may not have the chance to repair their own family this side of eternity, they can come and in the body of Christ see that God has not just restored one family, but he's made this brand new family. People without fathers can have father figures. People without siblings can have brothers and sisters. We can be reminded that even in the midst of tragedy, the gospel gives us a sense of hope. That when our dreams get buried, when our loved ones get buried, when it seems like our lives are headed towards the very grave itself, we can be filled with hope because we can be reminded that our Savior, the source of our hope, was himself put six feet below the earth. But now he sits in the heavens where you and I will be with him one day. God didn't just come to help you turn over a new leaf. He came to hand you a new life. And in some sense, you have to do nothing to reject it. And in another sense, you really, there's nothing that you have to do to accept it. Except for, accept it. The gospel is not just good news. It is the best news. It shapes everything that we do at this church. And my prayer is, if you feel far from God today, that you would realize um, that that distance is not caused by him. He's in pursuit of you, wherever you are. Accept God's great love for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful that uh, we are worse than we ever thought that we were but we're more loved than we could ever hope to be. I pray that you would help us to accept the wonderful truth of the gospel, that you make dead men alive. Help us to embrace this life and to live as those full of the gratitude that you provide in your son. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.